Well, good morning. I was gonna say you may be seated, but I see you already have. So. Good job. That just means you know the schedule. So good for you. Oh, all right. Well, welcome to 116 Bible Church, Wataka. I'm Sean. If you don't know me, I'm the associate pastor here. And boy, how is it good to see y'all because uh, we've been out for a couple weeks. Uh, we were gone on vacation the first week, and then the second week, uh, we got sick. So um, it's very great to see you all again. You were missed. Um, you were greatly missed, um, and we are just so happy and blessed to be back with our church family. Um, fantastic. Okay, so this is a surprise you, or maybe not, depending on how long you've been following along with us, but we're going to be continuing in our trek through First Samuel. So go ahead and open your Bibles or turn on your devices to First uh, Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 5. And I'm going to be real honest with you, I've been struggling all week with how much chapter 5 we're going to cover. So we're going to read the whole chapter, and we're going to cover what we cover. Um, and uh, by God's grace, it will be that which is most pleasing and perfect in His plan. So that is 1 Samuel chapter 5. is a mere 12 verses. Um, but uh, if, you, if you've heard me preach, you know. That, that could be three hours, so I <laughs> uh, will try to get you out of here well before then. But First Samuel chapter 5, if you have found it, and if you are able, I do ask that you would please stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Again, that is First Samuel chapter 5. We'll be beginning in verse 1 and reading the whole chapter. And the Word of God says, Now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. When the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Therefore neither the priests of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. When the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and on Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines to them and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they said, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. And they brought the ark of the God of Israel around. After they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city with very great confusion. And he smote the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of the God of God to Ekron. And as the ark of God came to Ekron, the Ekronites cried out, saying, they have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, so that it will not kill us and our people. 
for there was a deadly confusion throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before your throne again, Lord, to marvel at the word that we have just read. Your very words, Father. Your very words that you have communicated to us through your servants, Lord, and you have translated even to a language that we in 21st century America can understand. So, Lord, may we take these as your words. May we treasure them. May we pour into them. So that we may seek your face. And we may learn more of you and of your holiness and be made more into the image of Christ, your Son, whom you sent in our place and in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so, before we dive right on in, let's back up a little bit, do just a little bit of a review, see where we've been so far, so we know how we got to where we are, and by God's grace, we'll be able to go through the passage that we read and, and uh, see what God has for his people. So, we're in the book of 1 Samuel, we've been introduced to a family, um, a family that, um, a husband with two wives, uh, one wife who uh, had children, another wife who didn't, and we see their deep desire and yearning for a child and that God grants them that desire and they name him Samuel and in fulfillment of the vow made by uh, the wife um, they turn over the child to the service of the Lord in the temple of the Lord um, and, uh, and we see that this child Samuel grows up before Eli the, the chief priest um, and not just Eli but also Eli's sons we get introduced to them too and Man, they are not good guys. Um, we see that they're actually uh, very wicked guys. They serve as priests in the house of the Lord, but they also um, are using their positions of authority to um, abuse the people and to take from the offerings anything that they please, um, even uh, the portion set aside for the people and even portions set aside for God himself. And uh, we see that um, God is displeased with this. He announces a curse upon Eli and his house um, twice, once through some uh, through a prophet and, and then another time through Samuel. And we see that that, um, that the symbol for the veracity of that prophecy was God saying that your two sons will both die on the same day. And we do see that that happens, that Israel eventually goes to war with these, uh, with these Philistines. Um, and boy, howdy, are they um, getting routed. Um, so they say, ah, we know what to do. We're going to go send for the ark of God, and we're going to bring it here because it's our good luck charm. Um, so they think that by doing this, that they can kind of persuade God and bring him into the battle and to, fight amongst, <clears throat> to fight on their side. So they send for the ark and they bring it and Eli's two sons uh, come with the ark as well and then they continue, the Philistines continue to destroy the Israelites. Um, and not only that, they kill Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, take the ark and take it back to their uh, own home, their own town. Um, and that's what we, and that's uh, what we talked about 
talk about in chapter 4. Um, and that news is then delivered to Eli, who, bring, who upon hearing of the deaths of his sons and the, the theft of the ark, falls backwards, breaks his neck, and dies too. Um, so we see the prophecy of the Lord fulfilled there, and then one of the sons of Eli, his wife, his widow now, I guess, um, gives birth to a child, and she names him Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. And I believe that's uh, the last thing Jeff preached on, if I'm not mistaken, was the glory has departed as far as for saving those. Um, and then that brings us to chapter 5, where we are today. So, let's do what we do, and go through verse by verse and see what God has for us. Now the Philistines, verse 1, took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. So the Philistines, having, having overtaken the Israelites... And having slaughtered many men, and having slaughtered even priests, and taken the ark, and brought it back, they have, they're leaving Ebenezer, which is the area where, um, the, where the ark originally was, so, um, and then they took, so the ark goes from Ebenezer to a town called Ashdod, which is a Philistine city. And this Philistine city is, Ashdod is one of five major Philistine cities called the Pentapolis. Um, this is important, I promise. I'm not just giving you random information. Um, but this, the, the Pentapolis, the five major Philistine cities were essentially the five major cities of, of the, they were, they weren't really a united kingdom. They were more of a, essentially a confederacy, to be quite honest. Um, so it was five major cities of similar people groups um, who in times of distress or crisis or war or what have you would come together and work together have some kind of agreement um, and Ashdod was one of these big cities um, so they're taking Ebenezer or they're taking the Ark of God um, from Ebenezer to Ashdod and this this was a common practice um, that if a if an army had Symbols or idols or uh, statues or what have you of their gods um, that when you defeated them um, you could break the idols you could smash them into pieces um, or you could take the idols back with you um, if you wanted to essentially assimilate those gods into your religion um, and uh, part of that was taking them back to one of your major cities and putting the the idol or the statue or whatever in a temple, in one of your gods' temples. Um, and this was to show essentially the inferiority of this god whose side lost, um, and to show that this god is now in submission to our god, um, who was superior over this god and his people. And that's essentially what the Philistines were trying to do. Um, so they take the ark of God, they're treating it essentially like an idol. Um, and they're bringing it back to their town, not just to their town. Uh, like it says in verse 2, the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon, by a statue of Dagon. Um, so Dagon was one of their chief deities. We think he was their, he, think we, he was the Philistine chief deity. Um, they believed in multiple gods, but, they, but we think that Dagon was the guy at the top for them. So, 
the Philistines take the Ark of God, bring it into the house of Dagon, and set it by a statue of him. And again, this is to show essentially that, see, our God, his temple, he won. Their God in the, is now in his, is in our winning God's temple. He lost. Um, and, uh, and Dagon was a, there's some disagreement about what kind of God he was. Some people believe he was essentially like a merman. Um, because his, the first part of his name, Dad, means fish. Um, however, we think his name is now more closely related to a Hebrew word that means grain. So he was probably um, he was probably their their deity, their god of uh, grain, of harvest, cultivation, stuff like that. Um, the guy that they prayed to for um, a bountiful crop, about a good yield, a good year. Um, so they take this ark of God. Put it in this guy in this false god's temple to show this god's superiority. To show they're essentially assimilate they're assimilating the god of Israel into their own polytheistic religion, but as a lesser deity than their own than their own. And we're going to see just how dangerous that is. Verse three: When the Ashdodites, the people of Ashdod, arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So what they had planned is not what happened. They had done this as a symbol, as a, as a way to advertise the superiority of, of the Philistines over the Israelites, but more importantly than that, of Dagon over Yahweh. And when they woke up the next morning, instead what they discovered was the statue of Dagon was essentially in a posture of submission before the Ark of God. And as we as we could see, clearly this is not what they had in mind. They didn't, they weren't planning on their God giving any kind of appearance of being submissive to the God that we captured. So what's going on? What's going on is that God is showing the Philistines in much the same way that he showed the Egyptians previously that he alone is God. But they didn't get the picture, they didn't get the message. So they took Dagon, sat him up in his place again, and went about their day, you know, doing whatever it is they do. Idol worship, war, whatever. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord again. So this clearly isn't a fluke. This isn't an accident. This isn't like just some funny thing that happened. Like, oh, ha, 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 how silly. Let's put him back in and it'll be fine. No, this, there clearly was a purpose here. But not only was Dagon on his face before the Ark of God, his head and his hands had been cut off, separated from the rest of the statue, and had been placed at the threshold of the temple. My friends, this is a picture 
This is a picture of a lot of things. We, we see a lot of things going on here. One of the big things that we see here is that exactly what happens when God, when God comes onto the scene. What we see when God comes onto the scene is not simply an addition to whatever system or lifestyle or whatever you have set up for yourself. What we see here is God, when God comes in, He comes in to change things. He comes in to make Himself known. And what we see here are the Philistines who try to bring this God into their whole polytheistic system and try to just add him on to whatever whatever lifestyle, whatever culture, society they had already had in place. And God says, that's not how I operate. So what does he do? He instead in very real fashion shows them that he will not be an addition to anything. Either he is your life or he has no part with you. And, you have, and we have no part with him. So that's what we're seeing here is that God is making an announcement, no, I am God. The fact that you, your armies defeated my people that's not outside of my will. That is my will. God's saying, I was using you, Philistines, as a disciplinary tool against my own people. I wasn't simply captured and bested by your false gods. And what we see here with the, with the removal of Dagon's head in his hands is essentially not just not a sign of submission, but a sign of complete and utter defeat to the point of destruction. God is saying, you think you have bested me, but I'm going to show you that I alone am God. And to, to show that, to symbolize that, he cuts off... Your translation may say broke off or removed. The, the word literally means cut off. The head and the hands of Dagon the statue were cut off and removed. <coughs> it's the same word that we see later on here in 1 Samuel when it talks about David defeating Goliath. And after striking him with a stone and Goliath falling down dead, David runs over, grabs the giant sword, and cuts off his head. It's the same word. The same word here is that, no, I am not defeated. You are the ones who are defeated. You are tools in my hands. I am not a tool in anyone's hands. He had to show that to his own people by showing them that he cannot be manipulated into doing their bidding, into winning their wars. And now he's showing that, teaching the same lesson to the Philistines. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to have the rest, the head, the hands, had been cut off. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread, walk, step, 
on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So clearly, there's some time between these events and when these events were recorded, written down um, by by the author of First Samuel. Um, but what we're seeing here is that because of this, because of what happened here in this temple of Dagon, that the priests and the people who still worship Dagon, when they would go into the temple, they would step over the threshold. Why? Because the threshold now had been turned from a simply an entry place into the temple to the place of Dagon's defeat at the hands of Yahweh. And we actually, um, I mean, obviously, to to this day, you'd be hard pressed to find a a worshiper of Dagon, much less a temple erected to him. But we actually have um, some archaeological evidence that suggests that this practice extended all the way into the first century AD in the neighboring town of Gaza, which also also had a temple to Dagon. So this this practice left a very permanent impression on the people on the Philistines. Verse six. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. And this uh, this is just so rich with irony. Um, because right after cutting off the head and the hands of Dagon, we're told then that God's hand, which cannot be cut off, then rests heavy on the people of Ashdod, and they are ravaged and, and smitten with tumors. Uh, your translation may say something, a word related to hemorrhoids. Um, we don't know exactly what the um, what the malady was. Some thoughts are that it was something related to, it was the bubonic plague because there's mention of rats and mice later on. Um, or, it could, um, or it could be something as simple as hemorrhoids. The word tumors here means swelling. So they were struck with something really debilitating. Um, and not just debilitating, they were, struck with, they were struck with something that led to death. Um, and so what's happening here is that they're bringing in, they brought in this, the, the Ark of God, they brought it into their, their system, their society, to, to add it into everything. But what's happening now is that this addition, this mere addition to their system, is now wreaking havoc. Is, now, is, not, is not doing what they thought it was going to do. And not only is it getting the people of Ashdod, the city proper, it's getting all the surrounding villages. So you have, you have the main city, and then you have like little minor, essentially encampments that would surround the city that weren't part of the actual, the proper city, but were close enough so people could walk in for business or what have you. Um, and so it's striking Ashdod and it's striking Ashdod's surrounding villages. And boy howdy, are they in for a whirlwind. When the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and on Dagon, our God. So they're starting to see what's happening. But they're starting to see what's happening not in a salvific way. They're seeing, they're seeing what's happening 
through not through the lens of victory in the name of Yahweh. They're seeing what's happening through the lens of defeat in their own system. So they're saying, they're saying, we have done something, we brought this in, and it is causing nothing but problems. We've got to get it out. We have to get rid of it. And that is the problem with simply trying to add God to your system. That is the problem with simply trying to treat the God of heaven and earth, the one true and living God, as something you can simply subscribe to. Something that you can simply tack on to whatever it is, however you already currently live, think, act. That's the problem. Is that this addition is not going to do what you think it's going to do. This simply tacking on God to your to your lifestyle, saying, Oh yeah, um I'm you know, I'm I'm all these things, I'm 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 a man, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm uh, oh, and I'm also a Christian. You know, I, I, but if your life hasn't been changed by this one true living God, then this addition is just going to wreak havoc. It's not going to lead to your eternal life. It's going to lead to your eternal destruction. Because that is not what God has commanded. That is not how we obey God. That is not obedience to Him. That is not submission to Him. That's trying to have God on our own terms. That's trying to have God not on, not in the way He has commanded, but in the way that is convenient to me. And if that's how I treat God, then how true are the words of the author of Hebrews that I have spurned so great a sacrifice and I have continued on sinning. There's no sacrifice left to be made for me. Because instead of submitting, I have simply acknowledged but I have not removed myself from the throne of my own heart. I have not gotten down off the throne of my heart and bowed before the feet of Jesus. I have instead remained on the throne and commanded God to do my bidding. And God doesn't play that game. We're talking about the creator of heaven and earth who spoke into existence everything that is. We're talking about the sustainer of the universe who by the sheer power of his will holds together all things. We're talking about the redeemer of mankind who at great cost to himself sent his only begotten son to stand in the place of his people. He doesn't do anything else to do. 
He doesn't do anybody else's will. He does what is good, pleasing, acceptable, perfect in his own sight. He does according to his own plan. And if we can't submit to that, if we can't prostrate ourselves before him in worship and in humility, then any any gain we think we have by simply treating him as a plus one is going to end up being the very cause of our undoing. So the Philistines realized that the Ark of God could not remain with them. They knew enough to know that it was better to have no part than to claim him and add him to their system. So they sit and gathered all the lords of the Philistines to them and said, so all the lords of the Philistines would essentially be the five mayors, rulers, governors, whatever you want to call them, of each of the five major cities. So you had Ashdod, Ekron, Gath, Gaza, and there was a fifth one. I don't know. Don't, don't um, but there was so the, of the five major cities, they got the governors of each one, and they told them, or they asked them, "What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel?" And they said, "Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath, Gath, another of the five major cities." So they brought the Ark of God of Israel around to Gath. So what do we what do we have here now? We essentially have uh, what what God what God is doing is basically turning this into a parody of a victory march. So instead of taking the Ark of God and parading it around to their five major cities in triumph. Now they're taking the Ark of God and trying to get it away from each and every one of them. And so God is saying, you think you've defeated me, I'm going to turn your victory march into a funeral marriage. And so that's what we see here. Is that so from Ashdod to Gath, that's something like 12 miles. They take, they take the Ark of God from Ashdod to Gath. And what happened to Gath? Well, not a lot of good stuff. The hand of the Lord was again against this city with great confusion. And he smote the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them as well. So, just to show that this wasn't some coincidence, you know, it wasn't like you brought you brought in the Ark of God and, oh, all of a sudden, randomly a, uh, a coincidental plague broke out among the people. So they move the Ark of God, and the same plague breaks out among the people. And you have to simply say, I mean, I know what you're trying to do. I see, I see what you're doing. You're trying to say, oh, you know, you know this, this, uh, this could be God. Maybe it's a coincidence, but it could be God. Um, I'm going to show you it, it's definitely I'm the one definitely doing this. I'm the one who is wreaking havoc in your towns. So, 
Um, the same thing that happened in Ashdod happens again in Gath. So they sent the Ark of God from Gath to Ekron. Ekron, the third of the five major cities of the Philistines. And as the Ark of God was came to Ekron, so as the Ark of God is entering into the town, and the people of Ekron see it, they cry out, and this word cry out is... Um, tends to have a very negative connotation. When this, when the word translated as cry out is, uh, that's used here, uh, when it's used, it seldom means something good. It usually, almost universally, means something very bad. So these Ekronites, these people of Ekron, cry out when they see the Ark of God. They have brought the Ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So by the time the Ark of the God, uh, the Ark of God of Israel gets to the third major city on this ironic victory march. The people in Ekron have heard what's going on, what the plague that's following this this relic, this the Ark of God, this, this thing that we captured from the Israelites. They've heard about it. They know what's happening as it, as it goes to each town. And they say immediately, nope, get it away. Send it away. We don't want it. We know what we know what comes with that. We don't want it. Send it somewhere else. So then again they send and gather all the lords of the Philistines, the governors of the five major cities. And they say, and instead of asking them what to do with it, this time they tell them what to do with it. They say, send the ark of God of Israel away. Let it return to its own place so that it will not kill us and our people. So what we see here is that what they did in verse 3, when they walked into the temple and they saw Dagon, prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant of the God of Israel. And they brushed it off and put Dagon back in his place. Now that's what they're finally saying. Okay, okay, we need to put the Ark of God of Israel back in its place. We're done. We don't want it anymore. We turn it to its own people so we don't have to deal with it. And why did they say that? For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. So what we see here is that the this plague appears to be getting worse in each town that it goes to. As the Ark of God is moved from Ashdod to Gath to Ekron, the plague that goes with the Ark on the people of the on the people of the town seems to I'm sorry, seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. I mean, and what we're seeing here is very rich um, and clear references to what happened in Egypt. What we're seeing here is, is the hand of God resting heavily and even more heavily and even more heavily on the people until finally, rather rather than letting his people go. He lets, or the people let the ark go. 
And that's what we're seeing here is that rather than even though in, in, in Exodus, during the Exodus from Egypt, we saw we saw God calling the people out of Egypt and you know, the refusal resulting in the plagues. We see here God God plaguing the Philistines because they have in their possession something that doesn't belong to them. Something that is not for them. Because the Ark of the God of Israel doesn't belong to the Philistines. It belongs to the people of Israel. And God used this whole ordeal to remind the people surrounding Israel that there is a God in Israel. And to remind Israel that they serve and worship the true and living God. And isn't that isn't that true? Don't we don't we need that? How often do we need to be reminded of that? I think Martin Luther gave us the answer. It's every day. We need to be reminded every day that we worship and serve the one true and living God. And this and the reminders that we get from God clearly are much softer than the reminder he gave Israel and the reminder he gave the Philistines. But the reminders, no matter how gentle or no matter how seemingly harsh they are, they're in the best interest of God's people. So if someone hasn't told you today, Christian, let me tell you, you worship and serve the one true living God. You worship and serve the creator, sustainer, and redeemer of all that has. That's who you worship. That's who you serve. That's who we get the pleasure to call our God. And we can get so bogged down in the day-to-day, and we can get so bogged, and sometimes it seems like God's hand is heavy on us, right? Sometimes it seems like God's hand is resting so heavily, so mightily upon us that standing up is a challenge. That the desire to get out of bed seems impossible. But I'm reminded each and every day that on those days when it's hardest to get up, on those days when it's hardest, on those in those moments that you go to pray and you open your mouth and nothing comes out. When you're crawling into bed at the end of the day that you just cannot believe, it seemed like anything that could go wrong did go wrong. When your whole week sounds like a bad country song. Because you lost your job, you lost your you lost your girl, you lost your car, you had a dog, you got run over. When your week seems like that, that's not when God is farthest away. That's when He's closest. That's when He's nearest. Because the very because He's the one that's keeping you from falling apart. He's the one that's keeping you from spiraling downward into despair and depression 
to the point of complete and utter darkness. He's the one holding you up. I don't want to discourage you. But regardless of the good day you're having today, in your future are going to be some very bad days. Maybe you're going through one of them now. Maybe it's not even a day. Maybe your whole week has been out of whack. Maybe your whole month has been overwhelming. Or maybe you've been slogging for years and you're tired. And it hurts. And taking one more step seems impossible. The one true and living God is right next to you. And just turn to Him. Turn to Him, Christian. Don't think, don't fall into the trap of thinking that you are called to suffer through this by yourself. Because one was sent to suffer in your place. Who knows suffering we cannot imagine. He's the one who walks right next to you. He's the one who is holding you up. And as that poem even gently reminds us, He's the one who is even at times carrying you. Turn to him. Turn to him in faith. Not in presumption like the Israelites. And not away from him in fear like the Philistines. Turn to him in faith. So that in verse 12, the men who did not die were smitten with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So that when your cry goes up to heaven, you can know somebody's listening. Rather than the situation these Philistines were in, where though they cried out because they had not submitted to the worship of the one true living God, nobody was answering. Turn to him in humility and faith. And your cry will be heard. The answer may not be what you want, but the strength to accept the answer, whatever it is, will be given to you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we worship you today. Lord, 
your people turn to you today in faith. Not in pride, not in arrogance. And we don't turn away from you out of fear. But Lord, may your people turn to you in faith. May your spirit rest heavily upon your people. And may it provoke your people to turn to you, to cry out to you, and to rest in you. Because we know that you are not simply an addition to a lifestyle. You are not simply one more in a pantheon of gods. You are the one true living God. May we rest in you. May we turn to you and rest. Knowing that you are there answering our cries. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.